Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, part two of our three-part interview with the professor of dogmatic theology of the University of Thessaloniki, Dimitrios Tselengidis, in which he addresses the veneration of the holy icons and the holy things in the temple, the fear of the faithful and the faithlessness of fear, and when we must be disobedient to men in order to remain faithful to Christ. You spoke earlier about the holy icons. What you said made an impression on me. You had said that the matter of the veneration of the icons is a dogmatic matter. Now that the faithful are not venerating, and we hear some saying that it will be forbidden to venerate in the church because supposedly we may become sick, can you tell us more about this as it is an important and dogmatic matter? Yes, uh, as I had the opportunity in my life to dedicate quite a lot of time to the examination of the holy icons, it was my uh, doctoral thesis. I'm especially sensitive to the details, which are completely unknown to those for which it ought not to be, that is, to the bishops and the priests. Not only was it heard, but it is a clear directive, at least in the framework of Greece, for the faithful to avoid venerating icons in order to avoid the spread of the coronavirus. Likewise, it was recommended that the faithful not kiss the hand of the priest and to not take on Diderone from his hand, but for the faithful to take it on their own. From the purely theological and spiritual standpoint, this is not simply an error. It is not simply mistaken. There are certain things in our life which are characterized as erroneous, and there are other things which are characterized as criminal. Understood spiritually, it belongs in this category. It is, in other words, an act which, when done, for whatever reason, signifies that the person has fallen away from his identity as a believer. This is very clearly stated in the decisions of the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Veneration is not a matter of a recommendation or counsel for reasons of piety. Rather, it is entirely necessary for through the veneration, on the one hand, the relationship of the prototype with the icon is confirmed, that the veneration ascends directly to the prototype, and on the other hand, the icon, regardless of the material used, becomes a bearer of the grace of the Holy Spirit, which the one depicted had. Whether that is Christ, in which case his divinity is intact, or the Theotokos and each uh, particular saint. Thus, veneration renders us partakers of sanctification. Consequently, it is not a simple religious custom, but something absolutely necessary. The veneration of holy relics as well. It is inconceivable 
inconceivable for it to be banned, because the relics are the principal bearers of the grace of the saint that bore these holy relics. All these things are not an attack on some custom or tradition, but actually on the person of Christ, right? In the final analysis, yes, with a pretext of love for man, uh, of wishing to keep him from falling ill. We can understand this in the case of other precautions. It's understandable. It's right. It is the responsibility of the state and of the scientists to tell us these things. But there is a place that should be off limits to them. Even the thoughts alone, even if they be thoughts of the faithful, are blasphemous. They're blasphemous. Namely, that God could defile man. He could, he could be defiled by God. God can neither be defiled, nor can he defile. Consequently, to complete this, this section here, the veneration of the gospel, of the holy relics, of the precious cross, and of the hand of the celebrant, whether priest or hierarch, has absolutely nothing to do with these measures. Let me dwell a bit on the celebrant. According to the theology of the church, the celebrant is Christ himself. The celebrating man, whether priest or hierarch, lends his hands for this procedure. Besides, these very hands are the ones that carried the lamb, that is, when the lamb was sanctified, when they put it in the holy chalice. That is why we venerate the hand of the celebrant. Having the spiritual awareness that we are venerating the hand of Christ. Since the celebrant is in the place and type of Christ. It is spiritually inconceivable for the hand of this specific man to be a carrier of a sickness that he will then transmit. Of course, this is not imposed. It is a matter of faith, of the faith of the one approaching. In no case, however, does any state agency have the right to ban it. Of course, every state can use force, force to the point of death. It's a given throughout church history. We need, however, we are saying this here from the point of view that there must be total clarity within us that we will do it, that is, listen to the state, not on account of a falsely positive obedience to an authority overhead, supposing, according to the biblical word, uh, expressed both by the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, that we should be obedient to the worldly power. It's said, yes, that we should be obedient, so that there is an order in the world, for they are appointed by God but not for the matters of faith and the life of the church. For this, the apostles are appointed. It's not for Caesar. Caesar doesn't have any place or responsibility. He is exceeding the limits of his power. Therefore, we need to know that the only obstacle to our approaching the temple, the Holy Communion, is our sin. Nothing else. 
and our only excommunication is our lack of repentance. If in spite of this we commune and we venerate, not only do we not receive sanctification and blessings, on the, on the contrary, we receive the opposite, as the Apostle Paul confirms. Then it is that we can get sick, not by an infectious disease, of course. Αλλά επιτρέπει ασθένεια σε μας και θάνατο. Okay, so here some say the Apostle Paul says that it is possible for someone to get sick from Holy Communion. So we cannot say that in the temple one cannot get sick. These are two different things. First of all, someone who communes of the Divine Eucharist and becomes ill, this is on account of his blasphemy. In other words, it is spiritual. It's spiritual. It has nothing to do with the current illness. It is a totally independent form of sickness or even even death itself. Uh, what was the second question? Uh, that we can get sick in the temple. Uh, yes. Yes, that we can get sick. And yes, we can get sick. We need to clarify matters here, though. We need to clarify matters. I said earlier, what things do not, in any case whatsoever, make us sick. That is, do not impart an infectious disease. However, with respect to the existence of another person next to us, with whom we come into contact, the fact that this happens in the church, or happens out on the road, or in a store somewhere, in a house it's nearly the same thing why why is it almost the same thing because it does not have to do with our communion with god but our intercommunion with another person of course a faithful person who asks god for a spiritual umbrella is made immune to many things it's a matter of faith it is a matter of faith and the freedom of God to allow something. This does not mean that we should take it as a given and put God to the test. In the temple, we need to keep in mind that the devil the devil could be in the temple. This is important to say. The devil could be in the temple. He even goes into the altar. I have, I have testimonies of holy people who told me that he brings to the thoughts, blasphemies, and, and other things. In, in the case where we have given him rights to do this. Exactly. When we open up the door to him, he can visit us even in the temple. So this does not mean, of course, the temple becomes a place of the devil where he works. No, no. It is the house of prayer and the house of God. Except that these do not operate magically, mechanically, automatically. They will only work on the basis of the spiritual presuppositions. Spiritual presuppositions. A man does not only uh, a man not only does not fear, or should not fear, not only sicknesses but even death itself and the devil. This is not only when in a temple, but wherever he might be, if God wishes to protect him. Bring to mind the three youths in the furnace, which was heated sevenfold. Or how many other saints? Yes, so many more saints. St. George in the pit of slaked lime, etc. Therefore, there are some subtle aspects to which we should give their due importance. They look subtle, 
But at their base, there is the life in the Holy Spirit, which life is not simple, simply piety or simply morality. It is an uncreated power. It is the uncreated divinity. That is why Christ advised us not to fear anyone. Of course, he will allow them to do these things, some things to our body. Right? He can allow them to do some things to our body. He says as much. They might even lead us to the uh, cancellation of life as a biological entity. Always with the permission of God, that is, right? But without harming our soul in the least. For this soul, we must always be caring and not compromise with any threat, with any fear. Not simply of a sickness, but even of the cancellation of our life itself. Okay, here I would like to ask one question. And after that, let's go to the matter of Holy Communion. But before we go there, please tell me, tell us something. Now, if the churches are open and we tell people to come to the churches, there are some that are afraid who don't want to come. Attendance is not obligatory, of course. The problem is that we close the doors and exclude those who want to come to church and who have faith, right? Some say we have to close down for the good of our fellow man in any case. They do not make this distinction. Look, in the first place, the closing of the churches originates from the health services ad, uh, advice, right, which the state adopts and forwards on through the church's administration, uh, which are the hierarchs. This, however, goes against our ecclesiology. It really goes against our ecclesiology. There is no reason, there never has been any reason that is mentioned in the Holy Scriptures and our sacred tradition for which the churches should be closed. With the exception of persecution, of open persecution against us. This is the answer to the one question. If the faithful are afraid, this means that the faithful suffer from faithlessness. Well, this cannot be healed by pills, nor by closing, nor by opening the churches. These people must be properly catechized. They must learn that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He who is in the world is the devil himself, not simply the sicknesses. Christ told us not to fear even death. Let me put it conversely as well. We should even be glad if we are given the possibility of giving a testimony of this faith. I bring to you the apostles as an example. They were in prison because... Despite being advised by the Jews to stop speaking of the resurrection of Christ, they continue to do so. So, they were imprisoned. By analogy, we would say that they uh, closed the churches. There, they severely threatened them that they would move on to further punishments, by which they meant death. If the apostles continued to preach Christ's resurrection. But the apostles did not compromise at all. They said that which we should have well established in our own hearts. 
we ought to obey God rather than men. In other words, in terms of value, the discipline which the apostles recommended for the sake of accommodating our lives and society in general, this discipline cannot be of higher value than the commandments of God. That's why the apostles told them, we can't do otherwise. We must obey God. What did the Jews do then? They didn't kill them, but they beat them and let them go with the threat of more evils if they continued. But what does Scripture also say about them? It says, They departed, rejoicing. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. What was the shame that they suffered? They were beaten. Note, however, how spiritual men face such difficulties. Instead of grieving for having been beaten or for whatever other torture, they rejoiced because they had they gave a practical expression of love and faithfulness to the Lord. This should be our own mindset, our own phronema as well. But today the evil one uses the confusion that exists among the faithful because things are especially dangerous. Since even the ecclesiastical spokesmen, the administration of the church have become secularized. This administration says things that are in accordance with the worldly mindset. At the same time, in the church, we have the teaching of obeying our ecclesiastical leaders. So many faithful are terribly confused. In other words, they think that they should be obedient to whatever the ecclesiastical authority says to the bishop or the priest, respectively. This, however, is refuted of itself by the example of the apostles that I mentioned. That is, although, yes, the Jews were no longer in the church in a position to tell them what to do, and so things are harder for us, things for us are actually harder because it's our ecclesiastical leaders. But obedience in the context of the church is not without judgment. It's not without judgment. That is, it is not done blindly to whatever they tell us. That would have been suicidal otherwise, if we accepted that. The evil one would have deceived and overcome us many times. How many heretics we would have obeyed? Exactly. Exactly. Where would the church have been led? Here, with all exactitude, we must define whom we obey. Since in the Holy Scriptures, many things are said, which if you look at them independently, uh, autonomously, that is, if you take them by themselves, out of context, you can arrive at a very mistaken conclusions. In fact, even that there is no God at all, that there's no God. If you do not previously say that, for instance, the fool said in his heart there is no God, and instead simply say there is no God, the Holy Scriptures say so, then, as you can see, we would be reading in a manipulative, piecemeal manner. 
The same is true in the case of obedience. When St. Paul is interpreting this, forgive me, when St. John Chrysostom is interpreting St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who said, Obey them that have the rule over you, for they watch for your souls. He adds a basic presupposition, which is usually ignored by priests as much as by bishops. He says, Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, that is, their way of life. In other words, your obedience cannot be without judgment. You must see to make sure if what they tell you is in accordance with what they do, considering the end of their conversation, as he says, imitate their faith. And we are speaking of matters not of everyday life, but of the faith, such as the one we are discussing today. He says that you are not obliged to follow what they are saying if they are not in accordance with what Christ says and what the Church says. A question arises. Is it possible for bishops or in a parish priest to be saying things opposite to what Christ and the church are saying? I, as a professor of theology, I assure you that yes, it is possible. It doesn't mean that everyone is doing this, but we must examine whether some are doing it. It's uh, presupposed that we know our faith. Two things are presupposed. First and foremost, we must be in a state of continual repentance. Continual repentance. Because repentance means, uh, realizes our purification. We must live in the mysteries, the sacramental life. That is, our repentance should be, should end up at the priest epitrahelion, in a sincere confession, and thereafter at the Holy Communion, so that our spiritual censors, which we received at our baptism, may be healthy, that we preserve them. So, in the case where our spiritual sensors are functioning, it is possible for us to see that a specific leader, even bishops, expressing themselves in council, are in error. In other words, we, see, we shall uh, see this, of course, not arbitrarily. We will then consult men in the church that have the discernment of the spirits, who are theologians, we will ask them if we are seeing things clearly. This is a key that keeps us in humility. And then God enlightens both them and us. So, when we see that the aforementioned organs of leadership are in opposition to an express commandment of Christ, we do not obey them. This is not disobedience. It is obedience to Christ. After all, the objective is always that through them we obey Christ. The second argument is related to the church throughout time. That is, there are some sayings of Christ or the apostles which are not very clear. The question of interpretation arose, heretics appeared, and so the church assembled in ecumenical councils, laid down the exact boundaries of truth, and condemned falsehood, and heresy. When we say throughout time, we mean that ever since the church appeared, ever since the church appeared until today, we see an absolute consensus of the ecumenical councils. But even when an ecumenical council has not concerned itself 
with a certain topic. There is the consensus patram, the consensus of the Holy Fathers. In other words, the fathers of all the ages up to our day, that is the saints, let not every clergyman consider himself a father of the church, all these together agree with each other. So let's take the case of the layman. What should we do? We need to learn what you said earlier, namely that uh, which is this teaching that has this continuity, right? This continuity. And provided that we find, we shall go behind it, following the Holy Fathers. We shall neither be beside it or ahead of it, but rather follow it, so as to preserve the condition of humility, so that we may have the grace of God in our actions, in it, that our manner may not be impudent or insolent. And we shall say both to the priests and to the bishops, we are being obedient to what Christ said, as they have been interpreted on this question by the consensus of all the Holy Fathers. That is, we are following the Holy Fathers. Therefore, we are neither rebels nor outside the church, even if we be condemned in synod. As long as we keep this continuity, history will prove that this decision was mistaken, even if it be by a council. For it was a council that condemned, for instance, St. John Chrysostom, just to name one example, but not only him, there are many others. The church herself restored him in another council, another conciliar act. So, in our mind, or rather in our noose, we need to be clear on what we obey and what we do not obey. We obey Christ also through the hierarchs, when, as we ought, we know what was the church's phronima, the church's mindset on a particular issue. But if we do not know, we should not consider this ignorance of ours to be deserving of leniency, that is, to be forgivable, but rather it is unforgivable, since we do not know since we do not know it because we were not interested in knowing it, and because we do not know it by virtue of the darkening that we have, that is, the spiritual darkness, which is a result of our sins. We sin doubly, that is, first in being darkened, and secondly, in being led to something mistaken. Oh,